This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? The answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? I mean, I'm telling you, the first time I saw that video, I was like, no way. There is no way that there is a moonwalking bear in the middle of that video and I missed it. And then you watch it again and you're like, there's a moonwalking bear in the middle of the video. And I totally didn't even see it. Well, it seems that um, sometimes our attention span is not all that great. In fact, the term that social scientists have for this is known as inattentional blindness, that we're so engaged in paying attention to one thing that we don't notice something else. As you notice in this image that the writing is both on top of the hand and underneath the hand. In other words, there's oftentimes more that's going on than we're able to notice and to take in with our own eyes. I know that typically when I'm driving somewhere and I've been there before, you're kind of on autopilot. I love to listen to audiobooks. I can listen to an audiobook and get swept up in the story. But the minute I get close to a destination and I don't know where it is, the audiobook has to come off and I have to be able to concentrate because I can't do both of those things at the same time. Inattentional blindness something that I suffer for and with in my marriage. My wife accuses me of inattentional blindness, that when I'm paying attention to one thing, there are so many other things that I don't notice. The guy who's the pioneer of this field of social scientists, um, he, what he does is he he does a variety of these different kinds of exams and tests. The dancing bear or gorilla was kind of one of his pioneer works. And then he also does this other one that I think is even more amazing And that you're at a diner and you're getting served at the diner and the person who's serving you dips below the counter in order to grab something and then comes back up. But when the person comes back up, it's actually a different person. And that you and I, as they've tested this out, we don't notice. We don't even notice when the other person is of a different ethnicity or race. We are completely clueless and blind to what is right before our very eyes. So there's a famous psychologist today, very popular up in Canada. His name is Jordan Peterson, and he puts it this way. He says, what you aim at determines what you see that we think that it's just kind of this neutral thing that you're watching, you're observing, but you actually have to train your eyes to be able to see what is before you. In other words, what this means is that our brains recognize that to actually pay attention to something is cognitively heavy or expensive, that for you to pay attention to something, it takes an enormous amount of effort and work. And so your brain is constantly trying to find ways to cut corners, to not pay attention, to be on cruise control, something that some of you, I can already tell, are doing with the sermon right now, that you're paying attention, but you're not really 
paying attention. This is why one of the key words in the book of Revelation is God's people start to experience really difficult times that the command that repeats over and over again is look, look, look. And it's not just any word for look. It's the word behold, behold, behold. It's to look in a very intentional, even a reverent manner. God bless you. This is a church people should bless that person when they sneeze. Yes, amen. That's like, that was almost like a Baptist response in a Presbyterian sermon. I love it. And, and so what happens here is that we're commanded to look, and, and the Apostle John is in this state in the Spirit of God where he says over and over again, I saw, I saw, I saw, I saw. What we have in the book of Revelation over 40 times is the recollection of what the Apostle John actually saw, that he was faithful in his attentiveness, that he was paying attention. I was reading an article recently by a National Geographic photographer giving advice to people like you and me who just constantly take pictures by pulling out our cell phone, snapping a picture, and then putting our phone away. And he said, at the end of the day, the difference between our photos and a professional photographer, I mean, yes, there are dimensions of the technology that we use versus the technology that they use, maybe a little bit of the training and the editing suite and things of that nature. But the, the, the real fundamental difference between a great photographer and the kind of stuff that I take is that they actually stop to look and pay attention to what they're photographing before they photograph it. Where you and I, we don't tend to look. We just snap the picture and put it away. At the end of the day, the book of Revelation is an invitation for you to see in a whole new way. But I need to warn you that it's cognitively expensive and it takes a lot of effort. And you can't just see the vision of the risen and reigning Christ by being on cruise control. The book of Revelation is written in a time and a period of history where people are really suffering. And they're looking at the world around them, and because they're not really seeing it right, as one of my favorite biblical commentators in the book of Revelation puts it, he says, things are not always as they seem, that if they are just looking at the world before them, they will misperceive what's going on. And so what I think they would have noticed back in the early church, 90 AD, maybe a little later in the mid-90s, the three praising realities of the Christians in that moment of time were things like prison, persecution, and destruction. It was really hard to be a Christian in this moment in history. Thank you. You are a learning congregation. You are here to learn. You are paying attention in this moment that these were the three realities that they would have experienced, but the risen and reigning Christ is saying to the Apostle John and to the early church and even to us, oh, there's so much more going on here. Things are not as they seem. Will you look more closely? And this is the invitation to look more closely into this. Thank you. There was one person who was faithful with that. Not as they seem. God is far away. That's the thing they would have thought. God's far away. Things are out of control. Only the strong survive. There is no plan. And Jesus gives us an alternative vision of reality. Look, there's an open door. Look, there's a throne. Look, there's a lamb. Look, 
There's a scroll. Let's see if we can see these things together. The first thing that we might perceive is that God is far away, and what we find is, no, no, no. Look, there's an open door. Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that the kingdom of God is near. And in this vision that Jesus gives to John, it's not that John is teleported or taken to another location. Right where John is, right in his prison, imagine the promise of an open door to a person who's in prison, which is what John's person, you know, present reality is, that there's this open door. When our girls were younger, they would often, like all kids do, when they would wake up in the middle of the night, they were often afraid, and so they would clamor into our room and climb into our bed, and then we would have to snuggle them and assure them that everything's going to be okay, and then we would take them back to their room, back to their bed, and tuck them back in. And then the great 3 a.m. negotiation would take place, and that was how open is the door going to be? But they knew that they wanted the door open, even if it was just a crack. But they wanted it wide open because they wanted availability. They wanted accessibility. They wanted to know as they looked at that open door that we were near, that we were not far away in their fears. Is it any different for us as children of God? God, is there just, is there an open door between heaven and earth? Is it closed off or are you really close? It's really easy to look at the world that we have and assume that God is really distant, but He's not. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God is quite near to you and to me. That would be one of the first things that we would misperceive, but there's an open door. The second thing that we would misperceive is that things are out of control. It'd be really easy to look at today's day and age and think that things are really spinning out of control, and it would have been really easy in that moment in the Roman Empire when this revelation was given to John that things really were spiraling out of control, and yet Jesus gives an image to John that through that open door, there was a throne. This is the most important image in the book of Revelation. If the most important verbs in the book of Revelation are looking and seeing, the most important noun is a throne. Forty-seven times in the book of Revelation, a throne is directly referenced. Over 70 times in the book of Revelation, the throne or the throne room is kind of alluded to. The whole book peppered with, there's a throne, there's a throne, there's a throne, there's a throne. What does that mean? Well, when I was a kid... I was born in Houston, Texas, and I grew up in Waco, Texas, which is about 200 miles away, and both sets of grandparents still lived in Houston, and there was nothing exciting that ever happened in Waco, Texas, and so we would often go to Houston, Texas to visit the grandparents as opposed to them coming to us. And so we would go to Houston a lot, and as a young boy, a child of the 70s and the 80s whose imagination was saturated with what was going on in space. I loved it when we went to Houston, and every once in a while we go to Houston, we would go to this place. What is this place right here? Mission Control of NASA. I'll never forget the first time as a child I got to look and to peer into this room. I was enthralled, at least for the first 30 seconds, because actually watching scientists at work gets pretty boring pretty quickly. But as a boy, I wanted nothing more than to be an astronaut. I had the astronaut clothes that you could buy from NASA. 
I had that astronaut ice cream that was freeze-dried that you could eat that was actually disgusting, but you pretended it was good to your parents because you wanted to be an astronaut. I would go home and I would use cardboard and I would use the pillow cushions from the couch and I would make spaceships and I would dream of launching into space. And when I was 12 years old, On a January in 1986, I was home, I was sick. Mom had to go run some errands and she had to go to a meeting and I stayed behind all by myself. For those of you who are young in this room, there was a day and an age where your television only had a couple of channels on it. There were like four channels that you could get in Waco, Texas at the time. And sometimes they all showed the same thing. News, boring, news, boring, news, boring, news, boring, soap opera, boring, soap opera, boring. They all sometimes showed the same thing. You didn't have many choices. And on this day, there was not a choice, but I was excited about not having a choice because they were showing the space shuttle being launched into space. And I remember watching it. I'm home, I'm all by myself, and it wasn't but a few moments into launch when all of a sudden the Challenger exploded before my very eyes. Almost couldn't process, take in. People talk about in previous generations, where were you when President Kennedy was shot? For me and for my generation is where were you? Many classrooms watching it live. And what exploded on that day was not just a tragedy for those families and not just a setback for our space program, but there was a little part of my dreams, my hope, what I thought that there was this mission control where things in heaven and earth were controlled from a particular location. All of a sudden, I knew in my little mind, in my little psyche, that maybe that wasn't where the control really was. I'll bet you have your own little experience of an explosion and a disaster in your life where there's a part of you that feels like that things are out of control. And I am here to tell you that there is a place called mission control. It is the throne room of God, and He is in charge. One of the more beautiful things about the book of Revelation is that it describes for us this throne room of God, and not once, not once is there any description of God doing anything but sitting on that throne. And what you need to know from that is that means that no matter what's going on around you, cancer, disease, loss, disappointment, whatever that little explosion is in your life, everything is going to be okay. And He is going to make all things new. And so things are not as they appear. God is not far away because, look, there's an open door and things are not spiraling out of control because, look, there is a throne. And it is next that we recognize that we might look at the world like those early Christians did and think only the strong survive. I mean, it was a difficult time. And one of the first images in Revelation chapter 4 is this image here of that of a lion, the lion of Judah. This is kind of a double-edged sword image because on the one hand, the lion of Judah was a symbol of the strength in the Old Testament and the, the triumph of God. But these early Christians, they knew friends or friends of friends that had been fed to lions, that, that they lived in the Roman Empire. They lived in a gladiator world. 
where might is always right. And so what's amazing in the imagery of Revelation 4 and 5 is that, yes, there is this lion, there is the lion of Judah, but it's almost like in a moment of bifocal vision that as you look a little more closely that the lion is not just a lion, that somehow, and I know this is mysterious, that somehow at the same time the lion is also a lamb. Is there any greater juxtaposition of a lion and a lamb? A helpless little creature, and it's not just the term for any lamb. It's a, it's a word that means a little, a tiny, a vulnerable, an infant kind of a lamb, a wobbly kind of creature. There is this great lion in the heart of the throne room of God, and at the same time, this lion is also a lamb, and it's not just any lamb, it's a little lamb, and it's not just a little lamb, it's also a lamb that was slain, a lamb that was taken to be sacrificed. In other words, at the heart of the middle of reality is not this Darwinian exercise of that the strongest always win, and it's the survival of the fittest. The greatest reality, the heart of reality is actually the mercy of one who was willing to lay down his life so that we might be forgiven and freed. That is what is at the middle of the throne room. That is what actually is in charge. That is what we are actually invited into as we are invited to begin to partner with God and to reign with God. We don't get to reign like lions. That is the mistake that we have made as Christians. We want to be in charge. We want to be the kings and the queens when the invitation is, yes, you get to reign, but you only get to reign out of self-sacrificial love. And so things are not spiraling out of control. God is not far away. And it is not that only the strong survive because look, there is a lamb, there's a throne, and there's a door. And finally, you could look at the world around you as they looked at theirs and you could say, there's, there's no real plan for this mess. But in the heart of Revelation 4 and 5, there is this scroll. It's a scroll that has writing on the front and writing on the back, and it's all sealed up like an imperial decree. John writes it this way, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll to look inside. And he, being the lion and the lamb, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. There was a time when our girls were younger, when I would be in my office and I'd be in a very serious meeting and the door would fly open and one of my daughters would run in and grab some candy or take something from my desk or come sit in my lap. Somebody could be crying in a great moment of pastoral care and a little daughter would walk in and be like, hey, what's up? They never got in trouble for that because they were my daughters. You do that, you come into my office and steal candy, sit in my lap, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> you're not supposed to do that. They can do that anytime they want to because of who they are. Did you notice what happened in the very throne room of God? That here you have like this imperial setting and in the right hand is this scroll that symbolizes 
the edict of what the future is going to be in store for the empire, and it's in the throne room right in the right hand of the one who's sitting on the throne, and the lion lamb walks in and just takes it. Can you imagine if someone actually walked into a throne room in the ancient world and just went and took something out of the emperor's right hand? What would happen to that person? Think Game of Thrones. It's not pretty. And yet this is no big deal because the lion and the lamb is also a son. And the son can go anywhere he want to because of who he is. Which is why in this book, the word that repeats over and over again in this chapter is the word worthy, worthy, worthy. You, you need to realize that this was not a religious term. Emperor would walk into a coliseum, everybody would stand to their feet in the early centuries and cry out, worthy, worthy, worthy. These songs that come to us in Revelation 4 and 5 and what we sang about, they are imperial emperor songs that the early church turned upside down and inside out and declared there is only one who is worthy. There is only one who is worthy, and it's not Caesar. Caesar doesn't get to be king. No other power does. Only God gets to be king. And you see in the midst of this throne room, they're singing worthy, 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 not to Caesar, but to the lamb and to the lion. And the lion and the lamb have seven eyes and seven horns, and it starts to get really weird and discombobulated. But the seven eyes are not literal. It means that he has perfect foresight and perfect wisdom, and the horns mean that he has perfect power. And so there is mercy and there is mighty and there is wisdom and it is all put together. And then there's another song that was sung. And the other song is, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this is a flashback, my friends. This is a flashback to the most desperate time in Israel's history, all the way back in, in Isaiah chapter 6, when God's people had everything falling apart and everybody is banging on the gates and they think that Everything is going to go away for God's people, and they're going to lose it all. And God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision. Oh, it's not going to all fall apart in the way that you think. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Worthy is the Lord. You need to know that when you came to church this morning, worship didn't start when you got here. The worship's been going on for a long time that right now in the cosmic reality for those who have the eyes to see, for those who have the ears to hear, that worship is a constant, eternal activity happening before the great cloud of witnesses that around the world and in heaven surrounding us, when heaven's not far away, it's right here, that there is this cacophony of praise and worship that is going on at this moment, and it will keep going the moment that you walk out the back doors of this sanctuary. This is the pressing reality. You think it's show up to worship, and worship starts, and then I leave worship, and I get back to my life. No, our lives are worship. Everything is constantly being surrounded by the holiness and the grandeur of God. When I was a, um, in my late teens, I went, to, um, I went to a concert for a contemporary Christian artist. This was early in the contemporary Christian movement. 
and there were just a handful of artists, and one of those artists was a guy by the name of Rich Mullins. And Rich Mullins, amidst some of the, the shallowness of some of the early mo- movement, had some unbelievable richness and depth, and even saying of his brokenness and his struggles when artists were not vulnerable in that way. And he had one song that was his most popular song, which is the cheesiest song he ever wrote, and he kind of regretted, like, kind of slapping it together. And it was definitely a song of the 80s and the 90s because it had the word awesome in it. And in the 80s, we thought that the word awesome was the best word that had ever been invented, and we overused that word in the 80s. And Rich Mullins wrote this chorus, our God is an awesome God. He reigns from heaven above with wisdom, power, and love. Our God is an awesome God. And like most artists, you would end your concert with whatever your most kind of popular song is. And he did something different as he ended his concert. He had all of us turn around and face the back of the room, and we all turned around, and he said, I want you to sing back to the room instead of singing forward. Sing out to the world that you're about to enter into. And he started leading a song, and we're singing, and there were no video screens. It was just facing the back, and we're singing, and we're praising. And one by one, the musicians, before you know it, had left the stage, and that Rich Mullins had even taken his microphone off the stage, and he was singing, and then eventually he dropped out, and the concert just kept going, and we just kept singing of the holiness and the grandeur and the awesomeness of God. Rich Mullins knew something. He knew that as long as you were paying attention to one thing that you might not pay attention to what you were really supposed to be paying attention to. You and I will have an incredible tendency to see what we're aiming at. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. So let me give you a little awareness test as you come to the table today. What are you looking at? What do you see? Because things are not always as they seem. Let's pray. Forgive us, God, for our inattentional blindness, for not wanting to do the hard work of paying attention and seeing. Teach us to become a people who behold. God, we know that there's so much broken and wrong in this world and that we might think that you're far away and that things are spiraling out of control and only the strong survive and there can't be a plan. Take us into the throne room. Help us to join our voices with those in the eternal worship. Give us that awareness of heaven that we might get a little glimpse through that open door of your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said.